This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Coming up tonight, we're by Into It with Cassie Wright. Yes. And I'm Vanessa Tahoka. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. We're going to be speaking with Dr. Alexia Maddox later this evening. She's a sociologist researching how we use emerging networked technologies like crypt- cryptocurrencies and um, considering who's left out of the system. So stay tuned for that in just a little while. There's nothing I love more than the fact that sociology is talking about digital spaces and and tech and online communities. So I'm very excited for this one. Yeah, I love that I don't just have to wait until William Gibson or Neil Stephenson have written about a subculture to discover nowadays. I can actually go to a local Melbourne-based sociologist and get my first-run data. It's awesome. So in news tonight, um, something about Airtasker. I was really proud of this Australian business uh, to read that they have entered a world-first agreement with Unions New South, Wa- South Wales on pay rates and work conditions. And they've said that this agreement is only the beginning. So they're a Sydney startup, and um, they've been in conversations with Unions New South Wales for a little while. And the chief executive and co-founder of Airtasker, Tim Fong, has said that the platform has updated its price guide and safety information. And um, they're also going to deliver above award rates and um, and conditions, you know, looking towards things like safety and insurance for their staff. Um, yeah, trying to deliver that through their site. So if, for people who don't know what Airtasker does, it is one of those uh, sites that helps facilitate that bridge between you and someone who can complete a task that you need completed. So it's really a place you can go and look for a very short-term freelancer to solve a problem for you. And it's all sorts of different problems. They've run a very successful ad campaign. Um, Well, I mean, I say successful. It's definitely got people talking about it where it's anything from needing things ironed or um, whether you want someone to do some graphic design. But the thing about Airtasker is uh, as as an Australian company, it is quite embedded in the local community. So it's great to see that, you know, actual rates are being paid. I think there's something else here too that's super important and that's that they are regulating gig-based work. And the gig economy has taken a real bashing and very rightly too in terms of not protecting people's conditions and not even being willing to call people doing jobs employees, you know, having all this distance between the company and the people who are earning the company money. And that's really been conflicting with a lot of people's values when they when they consider do they want to use a food delivery service or a person delivery service, you know, instead of taxis. Uh, and so it's just great to see them really embracing that this is an issue and opening up a conversation with people who represent workers' rights and really trying to solve this problem and be in line with their values. I'm so proud of them and well done. Especially since with companies like Airtasker, it is often people getting a little bit of of extra money on the side or or supporting themselves financially through another means. 
And another common way that people actually do that is through selling their own created goods on, on Etsy, which is another online marketplace in the news this week. So what's happening with Etsy at the moment, Cathy? So there's been a bit of a corporate shake-up um, and it, it can look like a bit of, oh, stocks and shares, <laughs> a boring mumbo-jumbo, but um, it, is, it is quite interesting and it, it is tech in its purpose. Um, so basically they've completely changed their CEO. The CEO of Etsy has been around for quite a while, quite a while Chad Dickerson, and he's been replaced not with a completely new person, with Josh Silverman, who'd he, he's been on the Etsy board for a while, and he's also a former CEO of Skype and uh, Shopping.com, which was owned by eBay for a while. So it, this has all come about because Etsy's really been struggling with its mobile app offerings. Uh, and conversions for people browsing not on not on the app, sorry, the mobile website conversions are much lower than on its app or on its desktop. This is really an issue because it means that new or occasional users aren't being converted. It's only people who are already familiar with Etsy, familiar enough to have downloaded the app or bookmarked it or, mm. or to know where to go. Um, so its unique offerings aren't really being highlighted as much. Um, and that's been, there's a Bloomberg article uh, where Black and White Hedge Fund, who own 2% of Etsy, have come out and released a report which which led to this change. Um, they've described the company as bloated and um, pointed out the ill-advised spending in, mm. in their respect. So the sad thing is that it's also shed 8% of its staff, so that's 80 employees, um, and it'll just be interesting to see what changes Etsy makes and whether that affects the, the everyday um, seller on there. You know, uh, lots of people have their own stores selling a variety of handmade items or vintage items, um, and it does have a bit of a different feel to eBay or other sites because you, are, you are looking at, at things that have been created and are often... Uh, higher priced. And with the craft revolution, you would think that this is their time. People are loving you know, crafted goods and bespoke thingies. Uh, so one of the things I heard was that maybe their recommendations weren't as, as optimal as they could be? Yeah. I mean, they are talking about becoming leaner um, and, you know, reducing their operating cost and accelerating their revenue growth, which could be good news for everyone. Their shares have declined um, or the cost of their stock has declined almost 30% since their IPO of two years ago. So, With the expansions of Alibaba and Amazon into our market, for example, they must really be feeling pushed. Yeah. Uh, if you were at Pause Fest this year, you might have had a chance to see a talk from the COO of Etsy, uh, Linda Kozla Kozlowski. Uh, and that was actually really informative about expanding into different markets and the way that they actually make changes in the local communities. And there seemed to be a lot of good stuff actually happening there. So I think it's still one to keep an eye on uh, and to see what happens. Excellent. Now, we're all watching the news from the federal government um, keenly as we wait for the budget to be released. Uh, that will be coming out on the evening of Tuesday, the 9th of May. But there have been some pre-releases and we've been reflecting on federal ICT funding in relation to that. So announcements have already come out about higher education and it's, you know, from a, taking an IT perspective on that news, it's quite saddening to see that education once again is going to become more expensive for students 
And uh, not only are the degrees themselves going to be more expensive, and we're looking in the range of, um, say, a student studying a four-year bachelor degree, paying between two and $3,600 more over the duration of that course. Um, now, this can still be deferred um, into HECS or HELP loan schemes. However, the threshold for repaying on those loan schemes has also been lowered. So they're they're saying that from mid-2018, that threshold will drop from uh, the $55,000 mark to $42,000. So once you start earning $42,000, you start repaying that debt. And that's quite a lot that you pay back at a time. It's it's not a drip feed sort of thing. It's quite a big chunk out of not very high weekly income if you're looking at 42000 And when we look at this in the context of very low wages growth in Australia, um, a very unfriendly housing situation, you know, it's putting people in, in a difficult position and uh, it's increasingly going to mean that higher education is for people who can afford the luxury of that. And it's just sad whenever we see the gap increasing there. Now, while there has been a lot of press about that, something that has gone slightly under the radar is that the Turnbull government has rejected the applications of every university student newspaper that applied to attend the federal budget lockup in Parliament House um, and including local youth community radio media organisation SIN. Uh, it's such a shame, isn't yeah. it? Um, and that story hasn't changed since I was working in student media. I think there's always this idea that when you look at students as a as a voting demographic, they're still considered it's a transitory phase of your life and you'll become someone else who becomes a different sort of voter. But I still remember feeling disenfranchised um, as a student voter. Well, I think it's telling that in making university cuts, in making changes to paying back loans that will affect young people. Um, I know, well, formally, um, I'm, I'm now turning 26, so I won't be doing much stuff you millennial, any you. longer. Um, but I, I've spent many years there and they cover the budget every year. And so the fact that young people have effectively been removed from the discussion and their anger removed from it, um, it's sort of indicative of the silencing and, and aside from the political aspects, let's look at the economic aspects, the future of our country. We're talking about massive skills shortages coming with the, the changing skills that we'll need to address, you know, rapidly evolving technologies and, you know, the workforce skills that we'll need to to have. You know, it's not just STEM skills that people need, you know, it's all the it's all the um the social uh, critique sort of skills. It's its looking at data in so many different ways. We don't know what skills we'll need in a lot of ways, so we'll need all of them. Hopefully, well, I think something positive that could come out of this is, and we're seeing this shift already, a move towards the DIY education movement or a move to um, so many people, I think, from previous generations as well when computers were just coming out and you were learning how to code and you were doing it all hands-on now we kind of expect universities to be teaching us that Mm. Um, so it will be interesting to see what kind of learning or even um, online open source type Mm. learning might come out as uni becomes less accessible. Loving MOOCs and loving lots of um, businesses that are putting short courses together that are very focused on particular skills. But I still think that there's a place for that really broad learning um, that's almost, it's not focused on one purpose. The purpose is learning itself and having the the rigour that that academic um, background gives you really serves you well. I'm not sure at the moment that just cobbling together a few MOOCs um, 
is working and we need to have a bit of a shift in terms of business in having a look at the the talents and skills available in the workforce and saying, okay, I'm going to recognise you for doing that MOOC because at the moment I don't think we're having such a sophisticated discussion about that. It's three to five years experience and all these things and I sometimes see that for IT jobs, three to five years experience in programming languages that haven't been around for three to five years. <laughs> so it's, it's ridiculous. It's, it's interesting. It's a challenge for us. Um, so something that we'll be keen to look at is what sort of ICT spend we're seeing from government coming out in the budget. Uh, if we reflect on an article that came out in March um, from Innovation Australia, it's really worth reading. It's by James Riley and it is about how spending on ICT increased by 50% to $9 billion in the last financial year for ICT suppliers to the Australian government. The Assistant Minister for Cities and Digital Transformation, Angus Taylor, uh, spoke at a forum for technology leaders in March and said that the new investment in technology was necessary to fix ageing and run-down ICT infrastructure. Now, within the context of that increased budget, we've also had some really embarrassing problems with big ICT programs like the Census, um, <laughs> the ATO, uh, the Centrelink robo-debt issue that Asher Wolf's been doing so much to bring attention to. And, you know, that's happened during a time of increased funding. Um, yes, there might be some lag in, in terms of catching up. On the other hand, we're also seeing um, great initiatives like Code for Australia partnering with government and really helping at a ground level to bring people up to speed. And we, and we see lots of government departments um, quite willing to talk the talk of um, how they can get their IT up to speed and suffering from, you know, decades of, of lack of investment. Um, and then we, we look at this and then we also look at a context of losing a thousand jobs from the CSIRO in the last year. So we're getting really mixed messages here and really mixed outcomes. Um, I, I would like to be optimistic about where this is going to go. I think there's plenty of people who have tons of great ideas and are trying to get them to happen. You know, the ATOs just had a, a fantastic win. You know, it's, it's easy to talk about the problems that have happened that have been really public. They've had a great win against um, uh, some people who are doing transfer pricing and, and sort of offshoring profits and that sort of thing. And that's something that's going back to help, you know, our economy. And that's fantastic. And yet, you know, we're hearing about ATO job cuts as well. So I think, you know, the, the public service is really um, in, the, in the, the grist in the mill at the moment. And we're hoping to see some good outcomes for them and for ICT and government out of this next budget. Cassie and Vanessa here with you this evening and we'd like to welcome Dr Alexia Maddox to studio. Hi. Hi, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So for our audience's benefit, we would like to say Dr Alexia Maddox is a digital sociologist who's been watching the social implications of digital network technologies for over 10 years. Um, her research is at the frontier of digital communities and she's currently a lecturer in communications at Deakin University. Tonight she's joining us to discuss her ethnographic research into cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. Does that sound like something you can do for us? <laughs> there's a lot of mouth, there's a big mouthful in ethnographic and uh, cryptocurrency there, sort of topics. There's a lot in there, isn't there? <laughs> so could you, like most of our, our listeners are, you know, interested in technology, but they might not be aware of what ethnographic research would be and I must admit I had to google that myself so could you just quickly tell us what ethnographic research is absolutely it's talking to people about their experiences of using or doing uh, and observing how people talk to each other about it so that that means immersion 
It means that uh, basically, in a, in a nutshell, I hang out with people. <laughs> <laughs> I attend events and I learn what people are passionate about. I learn also what people uh, want to uh, do. And so in this case, why they would use cryptocurrencies, why they would use Bitcoin and, and what their values are, what it means. So we've looked into a lot of your previous research into areas like activism in the dark web and the ethnography of Bitcoin. As a sociologist, how did you begin to draw your attention into these fields? It's a very good question. I'm not quite sure how I ended up here, but uh, basically I started working, my very first project that I worked on was people who were interested in reptiles and snakes. Right. And uh, they were basically adopting the internet and, and because it was a new thing, it was a new opportunity and it was a space where they could find each other. So when you're passionate about a marginal topic, for example, you, you don't necessarily have someone who lives next door to you or, or around you that you can say, oh, look, I'm really into this. Do you want to do do go and like have a cuppa or have a beer or, and talk about it and can I show you my collection? <laughs> like. That just doesn't happen, but the internet makes that easier for a lot of people and that's why I started looking at that. And then, of course, when you meet people in those spaces, they're more diverse, they can be, and they're, they're not next to you, so you have to learn how to exchange with them and that opens up different practices. So that's what got my interest. Great. So um, could you maybe unpack cryptocurrencies for us a little what what is the current definition of a cryptocurrency well i can't take it out of a bag so i won't unpack it <laughs> <laughs> virtually uh, virtually yeah. so there's lots of different ways of imagining what it is uh in in short it's a digital payment system and it's uh Another way of thinking of it is like a digital cash. So there's no material version of it. And uh, in, for example, with the Australian dollar, we've got one. With a cryptocurrency, there's many instances of its kind. So there's many cryptocurrencies. There's definitely over 100 mm. versions. So the, the one that most of our users would probably be familiar with is Bitcoin. Yeah. But the one that's most amusing to us is maybe Dogecoin. I know. <laughs> yeah. I know. I love that one. Well, if, you, if you're not aware of that one, go and look up D-O-G-E coin. Oh, that dog meme was fantastic. <laughs> but when it comes to Bitcoin, I think a lot of people associate its use with still illegal activities, the dark web, um, and then there are even more people who are wondering how you would even obtain Bitcoin? Is it now something or with cryptocurrencies, is it something that you had to be there for the initial um, rise of it and now it's just way too expensive to get involved? Uh, I think they really want people to be involved uh, because uh, I guess one of the things about, and I'll come back to like what you're asking, but one of the things about cryptocurrencies is that it needs a network effect. So it needs social uptake. There needs to be someone to uh, buy you to, so that you can sort of, I've got like five crypto coins, like a bit, five Bitcoin. It's a lot of money. Um, <laughs> can I please buy your Porsche? And they need to say, yes, I can accept that. And, you know, so there needs to be a system of payment where everyone's using the same currency. And uh, in this current stage, like uh, Bitcoin is at an all-time high, I think, in terms of price. Mm. It's about 1400 US. Yeah. Uh, for one Bitcoin. And they're generated uh, by cracking an algorithm, basically. So a lot of computing power goes to that. And so that's one way that you can have a Bitcoin is that you mine it for yourself and you mint it. And that sort of um, 
is is now more an ideal rather than an actual practice. Usually it's just large mining consortiums that do it. So what we understand now is that it takes so much processing power, it actually costs more in electricity to generate a Bitcoin than it's than the coin is actually worth. Yeah. On any particular day, because <laughs> it, it depends. If it keeps going up, then maybe it suddenly becomes affordable for a little while. Yeah, there's these fantastic graphs which sort of show what it takes for credit cards versus what it would take for for uh, right. generating Bitcoin. And, uh, you know, they, they sort of say that the amount of energy that's consumed by Bitcoin is almost equivalent to a small country in in generating these currencies so it's 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 um it's a proof of principle it's a fantastic idea there's a lot of potential in it some of its current ways of of being created and and being used they they're not necessarily ideal um but it's all about what is possible for us and and it really is about learning what can we do if if our if our currencies are not and our economy and our banks are not an ideal system for us if we're if we're moving between the gaps where those that type of money flow is not actually helping us what are our alternatives so cassie briefly mentioned um people associating the use of cryptocurrencies with illegal behaviour. Mm. And Silk Road was something that we've spoken about before with um, author Eileen Ormsby mm -hmm. a lot on this show and, you know, an underground, you know, dark web marketplace where drugs and other illegal activity could be traded. Mm. Do you, like, what, since that's closed and since some time has passed, what do we know so far about people who are using cryptocurrencies? Not that much. I don't know that much. Uh, that's why I'm doing a study on it so that I can actually learn what are the practices where its use is, is really feasible for people. I know that there are some businesses that use it. You know, there's a little bit of a, a cryptocurrency kind of uh, business um, uh, pattern or, or, or environment in Melbourne. So you can buy a coffee, you can buy a piece of jewellery, you can buy a piece of art. So it's like that. It's it's really, it was originally about the quick transfer of cash, like mm. the, the a, a, in a placeless sense. It could be quick between you and me in the same room, quick between um, you and me if we're in different countries, same speed and uh, similar costs or no costs. I mean, that's its premise. And banks are looking to this with a lot of interest. Um, not only have they ramped up some of their app offerings in terms of people wanting to be able to split payments between each other, and mm. I feel like a lot of that was in response to these sort of emerging, this emerging cryptocurrency technology. Yeah. But now we're hearing a lot of murmurings that they're trying to get in and own the currencies themselves. Have you um, got any interesting examples? Like, do you know what's going on in the uh, commercial banking sector in the cryptocurrency space? I don't. My collaborator, Greg, does. Mm. And I guess one of the biggest thing is the regulation mm. of it and the risk mitigation. So for banks, this, this is a high risk uh, activity. It's it's operating in a, a legal grey zone and it's it's really the intention of a currency like this is to remove the middleman. And the middleman in this case is banks. Yeah. So it's really intended to um, not 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 be used systematically by central central groups. And so yeah, it is a risk for banks. And so if they are going to take it up there they are going to recreate it in 
a very different way. I guess another middleman is government itself, because with any sort of money, it only has value because we have faith in it. We believe that it will have value. And um, for example, we've seen instances of after the Great Depression or after war, people with wheelbarrows full of cash and not being able to buy anything with it. Without, say, the Australian dollar, um, we we tend to know what it will buy or we believe that if anything got really bad, our government would sort something out. With cryptocurrencies, who are we holding accountable for that? That seems like a lot of faith that we kind of have to put into the system without knowing who necessarily is is at the head or is there even a head? There's no head. So uh, there's no no, um, cryptocurrency can't be returned once you've made the payment. It's not reversible. But uh, so we are, uh, each of us is is responsible for it. So it's really intended to be a user-produced and, and user-exchanged experience. And so the idea is, is was based on trusting the technology, not trusting each other. So in theory, it's a trustless system. But of course, in practice, trust always mediates. So I guess on the flip side of not being able to return money, on the, on the flip side, there's transparency in where where value has gone. And there was a really exciting tale in, in quite the early days of Bitcoin where someone was, uh, their, their wallet had been hacked from an insecure online service. And I, I wonder, did you, did you follow that? And could you maybe tell the story of, of that happening? I'm not sure if it's the same yeah. story, but basically one of the... Uh, early examples of of that transparency. So the blockchain is the transparent ledger. And so everyone has the capacity to track the movement of money. And of course, if there's a heist, now people can actually track the heist. So this is the first time that it's possible to see a heist in actual motion unfold in front of you. And so people then try to move through. So the way that uh, the trail is broken, so it's a pseudonymous Uh, currency, which means it's just numbers to numbers. So each account is a number and uh, is the back end your name gets associated with with it but in the front end it's it's a number so people can trace that and trace the transactions between the accounts but of course there are tumblers in between and so there's this fantastic trail of of i guess um forum discussion where someone's like i'm in and then there'll be a tumble so it'll sort of try to mix up where the money is going and which account it's going to but if you can kind of go in with it then you can pop out the other end. It was a fantastic exercise in maths nerdery because it was was like watching money laundering happening before your eyes as the way they tried to disguise where this money was going is by changing the amount that was shifting around and splitting it up by new fractions and putting it into different people's accounts and it was just tremendous. And this is what people do in banks, but we don't get to see it. Mm. So, you know, the flow of money, uh, you, know, you can never know how much money any one person has if it's constantly mobile. And the, the blockchain allows us to see the mobility of money. So let's shift our focus a little from nerding out over how amazing <laughs> it is to um, contemplate a blockchain and, and some transparency there. Mm. And can we talk about where we think some social issues could emerge with cryptocurrencies gaining ground in the market. Who are the winners and losers with cryptocurrencies? I'm not sure that the winners and losers would be any different from the ones that we already have. And uh, because 
Yes, it's really the, the, the premise is that you don't have to have a bank account in order to have Bitcoin, in order to have a cryptocurrency and you can move it between people who've just got a wallet. You know, that's the theory. You've got to get your money into that format and then you've got to be able to move it. So you need access to the technology. So this is about access. You need um, the ability, the, the knowledge or the, or the support around you in order to work it out. So this is where dads call on their sons <laughs> and say, um, I want to do this. Can you just make it happen? So, so the knowledge is, becomes intergenerational. Um, and, you know, really in theory it's about, well, who is the unbanked? And can cryptocurrencies actually support, for example, in a developing context where people cannot, um, don't have the legitimacy to set up a bank account, but anyone can make a Bitcoin wallet. So that's the sort of premise behind it. But yeah, I'm always wondering how how um, an ideal like that is translated in an, envir- in an environment that's always characterised by power. And still, even if you if you were unbanked. Um, the matter of getting to that stage, uh, I think maybe this is because I've always grown up with the idea of physical physical cash and then digital versions of that physical cash that I still imagine sitting in the bank somewhere. Um, but even to get to that stage where your possessions or the the blocks of gold that you've got under your bed can then be converted into bitcoins, you'd need to make sure that someone was willing to do that exchange. Yes. So there's uh, currently in, in Melbourne, for example, there's Coinjar and that's they, they're an exchange and they do that. But the exchanges are regulated by the government and they do have to uh, conform to, to standards. So they need to know your name, um, your identity and then they generate a wallet for you so you have to have a driver's license so this idea that there's anonymity anonymity in 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 bitcoin for example is is not correct because most of these businesses are operating in a gray zone but they realize that in order to have longevity that they have to work with the current regulations so when we think about emerging technologies, we uh, currently, it's a cliche to talk about what they're disrupting, what, what traditional ways of doing business they're disrupting. So it looks like cryptocurrencies don't have the potential to disrupt the distribution of wealth in general, like, you know, access to, to, to wealth from scratch. But maybe it's at the, the business and the banking level and who's taking a cut, like that's really where they're having the biggest that's, effect? That's the big critique of them. That's really what they're intended to, to if you look at them as a, a metaphor, for example, or an ideal, and they're generated from a libertarian philosophy. I mean, that's their back end as to why the people who generated them and created it to work in such a way, that's really where it's coming from. Free market, free trade, weak governance. So let's look at the bits of that that are appealing to um, criminals and why they would have taken to the cryptocurrencies early on. Mm. What, what do you think were the strengths from that point of view? Well, initially it was about pseudonymity. So it was really being able to separate the traces of, of what you bought from your identity. And when it first came out, I mean, there was a lot more capacity to be able to do that. Uh, now it's just being increasingly shut down, of course. And from an idealistic point of view, instead of a criminal mindset, an imaginary criminal mindset, um, we heard stories that maybe cryptocurrencies would help 
uh, fund freedom fighters or or help people hide money from um, oppressive governments, for example. I mean, they would be considered criminals in their Absolutely, own. Absolutely, of course. They would. <laughs> yeah, that that was my sociological lens came in when you said that. I'm like, ah, but who what can is a criminal? What is a criminal? <laughs> like, no, don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> no, do it. It's fine. We're very friendly here. <laughs> yeah. So of course, uh, it's. Um, I have a a phrase that I always use uh, when I'm uh, describing the impacts of the internet and this this applies in this situation. The internet has forces, uh, has um, uh, like a dualism in that it it facilitates emancipation and domination. And so cryptocurrencies will will sit in that same way. So when you say, you know, it's it's possible for this... uh, this payment system to uh, facilitate freedom fighters. That that's the same idea behind Tor, for example. It's it's a place where people can um, be free of surveillance. Mm. And you know, when we're talking about cryptocurrencies, we're also talking about a movement about privacy, about um, autonomy, about sovereignty, and and in an increasingly controlled and surveilled environment. So really. This is a personal right. Mm. I've heard a lot of people excited about, for example, microfinancing using bitcoins mm. and getting around the fact that some countries didn't have the banking infrastructure to really easily transfer money from a wealthy Western country to you know, a third world country. But this actually opened up opportunities like that. So it can be something to think about. Have you seen any or researched any other instances of other sort of non-conventional things being used as money online uh, because it always gets my interest really when we hear things like people's World of Warcraft account being yeah. hacked or or money to do with that. Uh, I'm sure you've got some uh, more detailed experiences there. Uh, it's. I wouldn't say that that um, I've got more detailed experiences. I'm sure you both have had a lot of exposure to what's going on, and really, it's just about what do people value and what do people want, and that value and that desire or need uh, creates creates a commodity, and then we we work out whatever form of exchange we can to get that commodity. If that's um, if if I value money and you want my um, the the sort of my World of Warcraft character that I've created um, and so I'll say yeah I'll take your money or you might have something else of value to me so it's it's really about exchange and it's the money is such a um, disconnected part of that exchange practice and we've we've all had other systems of, of financial exchange that have all, that have been part of cultures different cultures and different ways of regarding value and exchange either as a collective property or as an individualized one so there's just a lot of different ways to think about it so a lot of what happens on the internet you know creativity how do you commodify that but it's the thing that makes everything um, happen and people to say that, that is the sweet spot. We all want a bit of that, you know, and so that's what we're all seeking. We're all seeking how to value that. Well, I'm pretty sure McDonald's Szechuan sauce packets are now valued at about <laughs> $20,000. So uh, that could be the new currency if we had enough of them to spare. For anyone uh, missing that, go and catch up on your Rick and Morty. <laughs> um, that's amazing. 
So I wonder if you've considered, um, do you think that Bitcoin has the potential to be a cryptocurrency that, that enjoys a, a lot bigger success or have they already kind of missed the boat in, in some way about their timing or how they were communicated? And, and do you think that, you know, someone else will be better placed to, to swoop in and become the popular, you know, a dominant currency? It's hard to foretell the future. One of the things that people say about Bitcoin is that despite all of the um, fracturing that's going on in the community itself, it's durable. Mm. It continues to go on when it faces lots of different challenges that say, oh, this will be the end of it, this will be the end of it, and then it kind of like limps back into existence. So currently it's the most durable one. And of course there are other currencies which are attempting to take the throne. Uh, what we know is that this exists and once uh, a premise like this exists, you can never take it away. Mm. So before we let you go, uh, is there any call out you'd like to do for participants in your research at all? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we, we're starting the, the research and I'm going to be doing data collection over the next three months and that means attending events, uh, doing interviews with people about how they've used Bitcoin and I'm really fascinated to find out uh, from a perspective of financial inclusion what people have used it for that have that they couldn't have had any other tool to do that and how that's really supported or facilitated something that's positive in their life. So I'm putting a call out there and you can find me on Twitter, Alexia Mad, and um, uh, I'm interested in doing interviews with people who have had experiences using it. And is it any cryptocurrency or only Bitcoin we're talking about? It really is any cryptocurrency. Bitcoin's the most common. Yeah. Um, so we're sort of using that as a focal point, but I'm open to, to anyone who's used other versions. Fantastic. Dr. Alexia Maddox, um, sociologist and cryptocurrency specialist soon to be. Thank you so much for sharing your research with us. It's a pleasure and just... Um, you can find me on adalexiamaddox.com and information is there. So that's that's a place to get to to get in contact. We'll tweet some things out again as well so that people can, can find you. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Um, sticking with the money theme, there was an article about uh, interns. Now, usually we're hearing about interns being exploited, but it's apparently a good news week. And uh, interns at these 25 companies make more than the median US worker. Which are these companies, you say? They, I think this is going to make me sad. They're predominantly tech companies. No, this is great. This is a good start that they're leading in the industry and saying your skills are valued and we're actually going to pay you. Uh, yeah, I guess it's good. I guess it's good, yeah, that people are getting paid. Uh, so the 25 best paying companies for internships pay their median summer workers more than, this is all US, right? So more than $4,500 a month. And if that amount was paid over the course of a year, it would be higher than $54,000, which is more than the median annual pay for a US worker. Now, this, these sums have been crunched by Glassdoor, a site that uh, famously exists so that people can rate employees and, and also so that they can sell their recruitment information to businesses. So it's it makes sense that they'd be calculating this sort of thing. People often try and figure out what wage they should be expecting from mm -hmm. a workforce when they when they go to Glassdoor. So topping the list was Facebook, where the median pay just jumped out because I got a Google Calendar notification, <laughs> where the median pay for interns is $8,000 a month. Um, the next three were Microsoft, which pays $7,100, ExxonMobil, and Salesforce at $6,450. Uh, 
So I thought that was great news to see that um, a lot of tech companies were represented. Amazon's there, Apple's there, Bloomberg, Yelp, Yahoo, VMware, Google, NVIDIA, Intuit, Juniper Networks, Workday, BlackRock, Adobe, MathWorks, Qualcomm. And then you start hitting a few banks, which also pay their interns quite well. But good news. Good news. Uh, Better news if we had some more Australian figures. I think we're starting to uh, get a lot of sensible advice on internships. This morning I was at a Melbourne Knowledge Week session where uh, someone from Law Squared was talking about the responsibility you have to your employees to classify them correctly, not just as uh, contractors or interns or whatever. And and also, wonderfully, they gave the, the broad... Uh, advice that um, just pay your interns. If they're any good, they're doing something good for your business, therefore they deserve to be paid. Look up the awards in your industry and pay them. That was fantastic. Pay them in Bitcoin. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) It'll be more than you can afford. In metadata retention news, Cassie, have you got this in front of you? Uh, So last week, we heard news that the AFP have illegally accessed uh, the metadata, so that's like all the retained telecommunications records, of a journalist without first obtaining a warrant, which is, boom, uh, scary stuff, what we've all been worried about. The AFP Commissioner Andrew Colvin said that police officers investigating the leak did not realise they were required to obtain a warrant to access the journalist's metadata. So this is fascinating because this is the first incident of breaching the process to access information retained under the new metadata retention regime, which requires ISPs to store customers' data for two years. So it's barely been in and this has already happened. Um, but actually, the, the protections for this have been uh, valid for a couple of years already. So it's even more um, surprising that this breach has happened. It's great that they've disclosed it. They didn't disclose which journalist because um, apparently that was sensitive at the time and that's fair enough. Um, Electronic Frontiers Australia have come out and responded to this news. It's so awesome that we have them around. Um, so they've basically come out and said that Uh, there's so many relationships that are really in need of protection. It's not just journalists. You've got lawyers and their clients, doctors and their patients, any relationship where you really need to have privacy. So we really need a universal warrant requirement for access to metadata because otherwise we're just going to keep seeing unauthorised access, whether or not it's inadvertent or malicious. So we've got a lot of EU states that currently have independent judicial authorization required and... um, it proves that they work so it could be a good idea to implement it here so the EFA uh, God bless (laughs) have uh, called for the immediate introduction of a universal warrant requirement for all access in short but um, it is really important thing to have you know we've got even in America it's kind of been mirroring what's happening here with them saying that ISPs shouldn't be allowed to sell uh, better data (laughs) to advertisers and the Trump administration saying no, it's not <laughs> fair that they can't sell it. They should be able to sell it. That's so. not your personal data. That's, you know, that belongs to the people who are, you're already paying to use their services. Exactly. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, we've we've had some, some good advice uh, throughout the show and from different people to use a VPN and hide what you're doing. But really... We need warrants. Don't just yeah. jump in and it's, take my stuff. It's a check and balance of our of our democracy. We, we think it would be helpful. Cassie, what's going on out there that we might be able to get along to? Well, uh, you are in luck. We did mention her earlier in the show, but Asha Wolf is doing a bit of a... Um, 
discussion and demonstration on digital campaigning. And so you can learn some of all her tools, tricks and tactics, which is pretty exciting. Uh, it's on Thursday, 18th of May at 6.30pm at Brunswick Library and it is free, uh, but you should register to attend. Uh, she's So if you don't know Asha Wolf's work and um, we love her here, Mm. <laughs> a bite. Uh, she's a Melbourne-based journalist. Uh, she won the 2014 Amnesty Australia Humanitarian Media Award and she's going to discuss how everyday people can create huge campaigns using online tools and how you can really use really easy search techniques to uncover important information and privacy tools to protect whistleblowers and sources. So obviously uh, you are welcome to bring your smartphone and tablet along to that. Absolutely. Uh, so we're in the middle of Melbourne Knowledge Week, as we mentioned. It runs until Sunday, the 7th of May. Now, you don't have to um, have any particular skills to get involved with Melbourne Knowledge Week. It's really for anyone who uh, wants to live in a learning city and know what it means to be part of, you know, a knowledge economy. And uh, such a lot of Melbourne is part of the knowledge economy. If you're, you know, making new things and sharing information and consuming information and uh, analysing it and, and changing it, then you're part of that economy. So there's a lot on, however, a fair proportion of it is booked out. So if you're looking for things like a co-working space, we recommend checking the daily tour schedule. Every day this week, they've been having different tours and you can just pick you know, ones that you're interested in and opt into those ones. Um, but there are two events going on this Saturday that might particularly appeal to our listeners. They are the Creating Wellbeing Night Hack at the Melbourne Museum. So that's happening this Saturday from 6pm till 6am. That's a real hacker mentality. I love it. Also, the Hack for Change is happening on Saturday, the 6th of May from 9 to 5. So you could probably pick um, and choose which to get involved with. The Festival Hub is also really worth a look. There's an innovation zone and an immersive media lounge. So if you're interested in VR and um, all the kind of sexy technologies that we keep being excited by on this show lately, then it's a great place to actually experience them for yourself. And it's kid-friendly. And don't miss The Playground, which is by digital artist Betty Sargent and her team, who we interviewed several weeks ago now. Um, that's open from 10 to 5, Monday the 1st of May to Friday the 5th of May. And the Festival Hub is actually in that Experimedia section at the bottom of the State Library. So well worth checking out. So we want to say a big thank you to our guest tonight, Dr. Alexia Maddox. Um, she's researching cryptocurrencies and currently looking for participants. So if you're interested and you use cryptocurrencies in any way, do consider getting in touch with her. She's on Twitter at, at Alexia Mad, so M-A-D-D, and we'll tweet out a link to her and her website as well. We've been bite into it and uh, we've been happy to have you with us. We'll be back next Wednesday evening. Up next is the International Pop Underground with Anthony Carew. So do stay tuned for that. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.